0: Hey, what is going on, everybody, and welcome to Listen Money Matters. You can't soar with the Eagles if you're walking around with the chickens. My name is Thomas, and I'm here as always with my good friend Andrew. Andrew, how are you? And what are you drinking? Good. Same break
1: last week? No, no, no. We're doing three episodes today, so I it's really tough, but I gotta drink three beers. It's, uh, so it's a hard tough. life. Yeah. It's, oh, man. it's tough. So you're I'm gonna on.
0: have to go get thirty-six thousand steps today. That's my prescription for you.
1: After the beers?
0: Yeah. Well, we're talking about twelve thousand. Like that's that's like just the baseline, if you just don't drink beer. But three, you know, mm. sorry, I th- man. Three I think I'm three. going to
1: drink three beers and then continue to sit for prolonged periods of time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe drink more and then go to sleep.
0: Like a beautiful American. <laughs>
1: that's right. That's how we do. I'm just right, drinking, drinking uh, an Elliot Ness. It's a okay, Amber I I Lager.
0: It. Hamburger lager, like hamburger
1: lager, could be
0: it's like hamburger helper in a lager. Mm.
1: No, it's actually really good. It's uh, is it? yeah, it's got this guy with this like presumptuous hat on. I, I imagine he's, he a pri- a he's definitely a private eye. I just don't know what he's eyeing. He does look like a PI, yeah, he's he's clearly important, which is why he's on he's a like- label.
0: He's like the main character in one of those those movies that opens with like real smoky hallway and then there's like the door at the end the flickering light it's just like elliot ness pi
1: hamburger then, like, helper extraordinaire
0: yep i will help you find your helper hamburger <laughs> uh i'm drinking spiced tea out of this cool mug mm. so a little fancier than last episode where I was just drinking boring old water.
1: It looks like your tea has an upside down sombrero on it.
0: That's, oh, it's a saucer. that's just conveniently glued to the bottom of the <laughs> mug because Disneyland wants to sell you a cheap, kitschy prop that doesn't actually come with a real
1: saucer. I always wanted to know the type of person that buys these things. Now I know. Thank you.
0: <laughs> this guy right here. Look, you can't go to Disney town and not buy something. That's true. And I buy weird mugs, Mm. uh, and I will continue to do that. (laughs) So uh, this is week two of Money May, where I think we're kind of going back to basics. We are tackling some of the fundamentals of personal finance and just kind of like, I don't know, not starting over, but – not spending so much time up in the clouds yeah and on this episode we have aaron lowry who is the founder of brokemillennial.com and the author of a book called broke millennial so hi hi <laughs> we're like covering it's, the mic. it's lowry lowry dang it i should yeah. have asked before i started the podcast aaron lowry welcome to the show
2: thanks for having me and sorry if you hear sirens and trucks apparently they decided today is the day to do construction outside of my house so See, this to... is the
0: problem when you live in a city and then do a podcast. Mm. That's like just what you deal with. And now that's I true. feel your guys's pain because I, I just moved to a big city. Though I don't think I'm going to have as many problems as you do, Andrew. Like people just like, like sirens like... going by or people like dying in the street. Like <laughs> probably once every other episode.
1: It's like 2 p.m. <laughs> and there are people just like tanked, wasted, like singing outside. <laughs> like
0: no get, her, get her job. Get her, have you ever been to Hoboken?
2: Have I? Yes, en route to a Bills game. So I saw it in really full force of drunk people because it was a Bills-Jets game, and yikes.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you had probably a similar experience. Um, I'm from Iowa originally, so kind of a sleepy town comparatively, and the first time I ever came to Hoboken to see Andrew was on St. Patty's Day. <laughs> <laughs> so I get off the path, and what I see is, like, a cross between like a day of the dead movie and animal house, just like the streets have people just like running through them. Uh, at least three ambulances pass me sirens blaring as I'm walking Andrew's place. And I'm like, I guess this is where Andrew lives. That's cool.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's really fair to go to any city on St. Patrick's day mm-hmm. because it's always just the worst representation
3: or best representation,
2: <laughs> depending on where you are. Because I was just in Boston for St. Patrick's Day. And okay. I've been to Boston before, but this was definitely a different side of Boston. And if you can't tell by my name, I am of Irish heritage. So it was really amazing to walk into the bars there and be like, oh, I look like everybody here. <laughs> so I've
1: <don't> never <laughs> had this experience before. So if you show up to so St. St. Patty's yeah. Day and you're Irish, do people just like pick you up and like carry you through the streets and cheer?
2: It's really funny with my name because Aaron Gobra is the Gaelic expression for like St. Patrick's Day, Luck of the Irish type nonsense, if you will. And so. When I was a kid, because it also has the word bra, but it's B-R-A-G-H, and it's like our Americanized, bastardized way of pronouncing it. So they're like, Aaron bra, ha, ha, ha. Like, <laughs> That
1: was literally what I thought when you said <laughs> yeah, that. Immediately, immediately.
2: And I also like when people are like, oh, are you Irish? I'm like, my name literally means Ireland. So you do the math.
0: <laughs> Andrew, you said I was a 70-year-old man on the inside. I think you're like a 14-year-old on the inside.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I missed the maturity stage. I definitely did.
0: Yeah, that's what my girlfriend says about me. So I think we're in the same boat. I think that's what like all girlfriends say about their guys, though. Mm. (laughs) If you're just humor wise, you're 14 years old because all guys just stick there. They never get past it.
2: (laughs) And it's also just amazing, too, how like when left to your own devices for a period of time, what the apartment looks like or like what life is like when you return. I just went out for dinner last night and Peach stayed home and I came home and he's sitting like up with his nose almost against the screen of the TV playing a video game with like two beers open next to the television. <laughs> and not that there's anything wrong with that or that I have an issue with it, but I found it hilarious that I walk in. I was like, I was gone for four hours and I come back to you like pressed <laughs> up against the TV playing games with multiple cans of beers open. And he's like, hey,
0: <laughs> great. I didn't know you were going to be back so soon. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I've noticed that now that I live here, I mean, I, li- I moved here with my girlfriend, but I was with three other roommates in our previous house. Like I was always pretty anal about my room being clean, and now I'm anal about everything being clean. So I'm the opposite of that stereotype. I think I think if I, anything, I'm going to come home one day and my girlfriend will be having her nose pressed up against the TV playing a video <laughs> game.
2: And <laughs> it's funny, too, when you're merging with relationships like that. We moved in together about five months ago and my roommate still lives with us. So it's three of us in a two bedroom apartment and my roommate is super chill. So it's not any sort of attention issue, but the difference between us is my office looks like a bomb went off at like any given time. It's my <laughs> own organized version of chaos. Like I know where everything is,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but it's clean. Like I can't handle the dust or like the dog hair. I always clean it, but my desk looks like an apocalypse hit it. And he cannot stand visually what that looks like. Now our bedroom's very tidy. I can't have that in the space where I sleep, but in the space where I work, I just don't care. But he's the opposite where when I have moved him out of various dorms, we've been together since college, but dorms and apartments, it would look clean. Like things were put away. But once you move something, the amount of dust and dirt <laughs> was unreal. So we always joke that I'm clean and he's tidy and it's two very different things.
0: There's just a thick layer of grease on everything that goes. <laughs>
2: <Yeah. laughs> but now that we live together, it's a nice combination of the
0: two. Kind of okay, balances out. So you guys have lived together for five months, you said?
2: Yes, we moved in together in November of twenty seven or twenty sixteen. We're in twenty seventeen. It's it's been a couple of months. My brain's all over.
0: (laughs) Okay. well, hey, since we're talking about financial conversations with people in your family, why don't we just jump off right there? I mean, it's been five months. How are things going with you guys? Well,
2: there's certainly learning curves when you move in with each other.
0: (laughs) Go on. (laughs) (laughs) I think
2: one thing that's kind of funny is you always hear this rhetoric that the first year of marriage is the hardest, you know, the paper year is your hardest year of marriage. And I think that that is out of the notion that people didn't live together before they were married historically. So that first year you're together, you're getting used to each other's idiosyncrasies, like you think you know someone really well until you live with them. And then there's this whole different level of getting to know a person and all of their little tics and quirks and all of that. And So, I mean, a couple of we're not married yet, but one thing I have noticed is with my girlfriends who live with a partner before getting married, like the first year really wasn't that bad, but it's because they worked everything out in that first year of cohabitating. So there's there have certainly been moments we're trying for both of us (laughs) certainly not that it was just him i i'm not the easiest person to live with all the time Mm -hmm. and you know we have a dog together so there's always the like who's taking responsibility for what with the pet and all of that but financially it was a pretty smooth transition one because it reduced everybody's rent when he moved in Mm because there's three of us splitting the cost of a two-bedroom apartment so that That was true but we started having money conversations a really long time ago.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So there were really not many surprises that came out when we moved in together. And I would say one thing that's been nice about it is that it's put us on the same page and we now kind of have not weekly. I do weekly budget check-ins with myself and he and I kind of connect monthly to talk about our financial goals. And it's kind of like having an accountability buddy because we're not married. We don't bank jointly. I okay. have a, a very strong feeling about not helping him, like pay off student loans or anything mm-hmm. like that, until marriage documents are signed. When we are legally tied to one another, I am happy to help.
0: Mm-hmm. Until then, nope. So you you are willing to help when you do get married, though?
2: Well, in my opinion, and you know, it's to use your own. Personal finance is nothing if not personal. But in my opinion, and what is best for my mental being, when we're married, we're a team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So everything that we earn is ours. It's not mine. It's not his. It's our money. And his debt becomes our debt. Okay. And I, I should mention, I don't have any debt. I made my college decision based on avoiding student loans. And then I hustled like a maniac my early years of my career to avoid any sort of credit card debt issues. I was earning $23,000 a year in New York City in year one, which... How is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> Eight roommates in a studio? No, and I've always lived in the same apartment.
0: Okay. Rent
2: is almost all of my cost of living, yeah. and then um, part of it. I found really quirky ways to subsidize my life. One of them is I worked at Starbucks, so I would take home the expired food, and I ate a lot of bistro boxes and paninis and <laughs> those hot press <laughs> sandwiches and cake pops. And I would babysit, which I often got fed there as well. So meal wise, my grocery bill was super low. Okay, and. I didn't do a lot in the way of entertainment that cost money. In New York City, there's so much to do here for free. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And I also joke that I'm a woman. So going into a bar, I could often get a drink that I didn't have to pay for. And (laughs) so a big part of my early socializing was kind of figuring out hacks of way to do things that I wanted to do without paying for them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, eventually I, I got to phase out of that a little bit. I still do it to some degree, but I just ruthlessly prioritized what I valued and I was actually able to save about five hundred dollars in that early year, only earning twenty three K because I only spent money on what I wanted to spend money on. Now I did have to say no a lot to things that I either wanted to do or friends that I wanted to spend time with, or I, you know, asked for alternate plan options like, Hey, I can't spend twenty dollars on brunch right now. That's mm-hmm. out of my budget. Do you wanna just get a bagel and walk in the park or come over to my place and I can make something? So
1: you're you're yeah. very outgoing. And you're, you're like face value, which I think is awesome. And I'm very similar. So I could imagine the people you're friends with, you are like, yeah, I just can't afford that. Like, no. They're like, ah, like, she's awesome because she told me exactly what she means. I think a lot of people are, are embarrassed about that or don't feel comfortable. So like, how, how might you handle that? You don't have to say it's
2: because I can't afford it. I did because, like you said, I was comfortable doing that. And the friend group that we self-select as humans, I tend to be friends with people that are a little more fiscally conscious slash conservative. Mm-hmm. But a big part of it is offering the the stereotypical compliment sandwich. And it can be the first line isn't necessarily, I can't afford it. It could be, I really want to spend time with you. But instead of doing a brunch, how about we X, Y, Z? And offer mm. some alternative. And a lot of times your friends just want to spend time with you. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't really matter so much what you're doing, it's more of the value of the time that you're spending together. So if you offer an alternative option, nine times out of ten, I have found that people will take you up on it, especially because you're offering a solution to the problem that you are essentially creating. Mm. Yeah. Now, if you say, I don't want to do that and leave it hanging, they might be like, Okay, well, see ya. Has, an well, asshole. They don't yeah. know your
0: they don't know what your intentions are. And right. I mean if you say that and you I think people often like assume the worst if you don't say anything. So what the subtext might end up being is I don't want to hang out with you or like I have better things right. to do, not I just don't have enough money right now to make that comfortable.
1: And I actually but, feel like a lot of people will be thinking the exact same thing. They're like, We're going to brunch. Oh, that means like, I don't know, fifty bucks. Like that that sucks. And then yeah. you taking like the risk of saying something, they're like Everyone could be happy.
2: Absolutely. Well, do you ever
1: get the feeling like everyone
0: actually wants to go eat at the dive, but they they think that everyone else wants to go eat at the steakhouse, so like they just kind of go along with it?
2: And sometimes you want to eat at the steakhouse. And so, there's like, nothing you, wrong you with know, that.
0: Occasionally you do, but like, right? But I'll go to I- conferences sometimes, and people are like, "Hey, do you want to go to this expensive steakhouse?" And like in my mind, I'm like, "Actually, I want to go to like Quiznos." To and be a hundred percent honest. You think
2: it's what you're supposed to do versus what you want to do, part of Mm -hmm. the problem. But part of this, you know, offering an alternative situation is that if your friend legitimately wants to go to the steakhouse, like if they're a foodie and this is the place they found and this is the weekend they want to do it, and you Mm -hmm. say no, and they say, okay, cool, catch you later, you can't be offended. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other part. And I think people's feelings get hurt very easily in situations like that. Or if you have... The other thing I do have to say is sometimes you got to throw your friends a bone. If they've offered or asked you to come do something fun that would cost money four times in a row and you have countered with Netflix and a bottle of wine or a, like a six pack, whatever it is, four times in a row and they've been like, yeah, cool, we'll do that. On the fifth time, they might be like, no, I want to go to the club. If you don't want to come, I'm still going to go. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe maybe you've saved up a little money on your fun fund and you're like, okay, this I, I'll do it. Also, because I want to do it.
0: I think that speaks to a larger money prioritization issue where like maybe some of the money that you do budget to fund needs to be for like, not necessarily what do I want to do, but can I enable myself to be there for what my friends want to do? Cause I, I've got a friend who like, he doesn't make as much money as like, say I do, but he makes plenty of money to go out and like go to a movie or go do a thing but he'll often say, "Oh, I don't want to spend that money on that thing." Or like, "I I feel like I don't have enough money uh to go do this like one thing that you guys are going to go do." And then like the next week you'll see him buying like six new video games or something. So it's like, "Okay, it's not that you don't have enough money to go do that thing with us. It's that your priority for your fun money is only on the things you want to do." And you know what? There's nothing like wrong with that, but It does kind of put a bad taste in your friend's mouths at some point because like they start to realize like you're not the guy who's going to be up to go do anything unless it's exactly what you want to do.
2: So there's two things about that. One, if you say no enough times, people stop asking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's something you have to realize. And it's not because they don't want to be your friend. It's because they're tired of hearing the word no and getting rejected. It's the same in platonic relationships as in romantic relationships, you know, the risk of rejection. And the other thing is, while I very staunchly advocate for spending on what you value, I think sometimes people take that to such an extreme where it sounds like your friend is thinking, here's what I value in terms of tangible goods. Instead of thinking, I also value cultivating and maintaining my relationships. And even if that Mm -hmm. sometimes means doing something that, is not an activity I would have picked. I am still investing in my friends, which is something that I value. I think people yeah. don't always think that part all the way through.
0: I absolutely agree with that. And he'll, he'll sometimes outright say that, like, that's just not something I want to go do. And I've had other friends who like they'll watch me talk to somebody at a conference and they're like, you're not interested in football. Like, why are you talking about that? It's like, well, yeah, I'm not that interested in football, but I'll take enough of an interest in it because I'm interested in having a good conversation with this person who is interested in football. Mm So, you know, I'll find a way to be interested. And I think it's the same thing with going and doing things. I'm not necessarily interested in going out and painting, but, you know, it could be fun and you want to do it. So why not?
2: Well, a good example is one of my best friends here in New York. She is a foodie. That food is really important to her. She loves going out to eat. And she picks really good restaurants. I'm not a foodie. I don't particularly value food as part of my life experience. I like a really good latte and a really good craft cocktail and a good beer. But I don't really care about the food part of it. Mm -hmm. But sometimes what she wants to do is go out to eat. And so sometimes... I go out to eat with her because it's what she wants to do. And on the flip side, she's not a big beer drinker, but she'll go to a dive bar with me if I want to go to a dive bar. So it's that give and take there. And that's really, I learned the hard way in New York as I said no so often early on because I was so focused on saving my money and being really careful and not going over my budget. And there were times that I could afford to go with my friends and go do something. And I still said no. And I don't regret healthy financial behaviors, but I do regret that it put a burden on certain relationships that I was able to repair, but it took a little bit of them saying like, hey, it's exhausting to hear you say no all the time. It's exhausting Mm -hmm. that we wanna do stuff with you on Fridays and you always pick going to a babysitting gig when we know you could this one time afford to not do it. So you, you do, sometimes you get burned a little bit early on and that's part of how I have learned to place value on my relationships even when the activity we're doing is not my value.
1: So mm-hmm. when I go out, I'll, I'll talk with my friends about, I don't know, the going-ons of life, cats, like important things, <laughs> uh, and like we'll also talk about money. Like, do you talk with your friends about money?
2: Totally depends on the friend. I think that's important part, is knowing your financial script with your friend. And no one friends, or no two friends are going to be the same. Mm-hmm. And some of that has to do with how you spend money with your friends. So it could be there's one buddy of mine where we will just go back and forth picking up rounds. And it could be like one night we go out and we go to a fancy place and I pick up the tab and it's more expensive. Next time we go to a dive bar, he picks it up. It's not as expensive. But ultimately, over the course of our relationship, it all stuff out. levels out. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not fixating on like, well, last time I spent 15 more dollars than he's spending this time. But another close friend of mine, we always pay like down to the penny, exactly what we each individually owe. And we both earn good money. It's not any sort of penny pinching frugality thing. That's just the script we established early on. And there's no reason to upset the apple cart to use a cliche and Mm -hmm. change that because it works for us. So I think you need to know your script with your friends in terms of how you talk money in that regard. Now, in terms of Hey, how much do you make? Hey, what's your net worth? Hmm. What's your savings rate? My friends all know I'm very open about talking money.
1: They're like, you know, oh God, I'm- Aaron's coming out. We're talking about money. <laughs> I'm, I imagine I- that's what my friends think when we go out.
2: <laughs> right. It's like I literally wrote a book about it. So that's a totally different scenario where if my friends want to talk money, they approach me. I very rarely bring it up proactively. Yeah. Uh, because I, I know it makes some of them uncomfortable. And it's been interesting where as I've gotten further along in my you know, personal finance expert career, whatever you want to call it, more friends have come out of the woodwork asking questions and being open and asking for help or specific targeted questions about net worth and investing and all of these different things where I think that if I didn't write about money, we never would have had those conversations.
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, well you, I think you, that says that they're like dying for someone to talk to about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And it and feels very taboo. Willing-
0: like they know that you're willing to help and like you kind of have the right mindset about it instead of just like wanting to talk about you.
2: That's true. Cause yeah. I mean,
0: some people would just want to talk about their own finances, but if they know that like, okay, Aaron talks about other people's finances and that's her whole thing. Like, now I could see there's a reason for me to go talk to her about that and I but, think she's going to be compassionate and understanding if I have a problem.
1: Look, if if Aaron, if we went out to a bar, we'd probably talk about money and we can go into all the details about all the things because you're comfortable about it, I'm comfortable about it, like all's cool and and like we know that. But what about the people who are are not and perhaps like And I think maybe we're taking for granted that here we are, three people who are comfortable talking about money. Like, one, like, what if you're the person that's not comfortable talking about money? Or two, what if you're like kind of okay with it and the person you're with, you know, like desperately needs to talk about it or just have a sounding board? Like, how do you kind of approach that? Mm -hmm. There's
2: a difference between approaching it with partners, romantic partners, friends, and parents or siblings. Those are all three different scenarios. With your partner, I think it's the most critical. Okay. And partly because if it's someone that you're going to combine financial lives with, you need to know the dirt where
1: the bodies are buried. Yes. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And a big part of that to me is I call it getting financially naked. And I advise that. I mean, I would love if everybody brought their credit reports on date one, but I'm realistic. This is not going to happen.
0: <laughs> that just reminds me of like the house bunny where she brings a freaking checklist to the date that <laughs> she's got like prepped questions.
2: Yeah, I would love for people to be like, hey, I have a 727 credit score. Uh, this one time I had an item go to collections, but I've taken care of it. Like, if there was that much transparency, it'd be amazing. Oh it's my God. Gonna M- it's fine.
1: Moneydating.com. Someone needs to do this.
2: Guys. We got to do answer, it right after we wake hang your, up. I'm going to beat you to it. Andrew will, Andrew will
1: buy The Domain on
0: this podcast episode. He's already done this once before. All right, guys, so, just, we're
1: moving. just talk for a little bit while I do some other things.
0: <laughs> well, speaking about that, have you seen The Big Short, by the way? Yes. It's one of my like favorite new movies, but I remember um, Michael Burry, who is like the only character in the movie who is literally playing a real-life person called Michael Burry, uh, he says like, I met my wife on an online dating site and my, my profile, I wrote, I'm a medical student with one eye and $145,000 in student debt. And my wife responded because she was looking for somebody honest. <laughs> and I was like, there you go. There's your kind of person. <laughs> it's so
2: True, though, there it's so easy to misrepresent ourselves and like how we're doing financially. And it's really easy for people to seem and have the trappings of wealth. I mean, none of this is news to any of us or the listeners of this podcast. Mm -hmm. But what's important to me when you get financially naked with someone is one, I advocate you do it at the latest around the time that you realize I could marry this person
3: Mm.
2: or if marriage is not something that you're interested in somebody that I will cohabitate with and have a long-term relationship with either way your financial lives are gonna start to intersect yeah so once you reach that point you need to know everything Mm -hmm. and you shouldn't necessarily have the whole conversation at once because I promise you it's going to get tense yeah at some points even if you are both ridiculously financially savvy there's going to be something that you hit on that you completely disagree about and it can get really tense
3: absolutely
1: so
2: one have a good poker face if you go into this conversation and you smirk or laugh or make a derisive face or you know mock your partner think about it as if you got naked physically in front of another human being and they laughed at you mm-hmm. you are not getting naked in front of that human being again yeah It's the exact same thing with your money. So have your poker face ready. And I would just start with some of the real basic stuff, asking them, you know, if you really want to ease into it, ask more about their financial goals and spending habits and kind of having an understanding of, are you a spender or a saver? What are your short, medium, long-term goals? What does life look like to you if you want to have kids? Is that city living, suburb living, apartments, house? What do you value? What does retirement look like to you? Because if you want to be traveling the world and their ideal situation is owning a house and never moving ever in their lives, this could be a compatibility issue that you're but figuring out. How do you bring right this now.
1: up? Like, I mean, I'm usually talking about cats and it's like a big leap to jump into – you know. Know your partner first.
0: Cat's fat, cat's money. <laughs> Boom, there you go. <laughs> the cat
2: is expensive. We had to take the cat to the vet. Speaking of money,
0: oh, so, yeah. I mean,
2: there you go.
3: Mm-hmm. But
2: it depends on your partner. And mm. I, if you drink as a couple, I would advocate having a bottle of wine or a six-pack available. I think it brings down some of the tensions right <laughs> off the bat.
0: That's what but- Andrew's always said he does. Like he and Laura will just get a bottle of wine and look at the finances.
2: <laughs> yeah, it requires it. it's nice some of the times just make it more like a relaxed money meeting it shouldn't be an inquisition especially if one of you is better off financially than the other this shouldn't be a targeted attack this Uh needs to be a conversation and you you know your partner better than anyone so the beginning of it could be you give them a heads up because maybe somebody's like that and they need to get in the headspace and you say like hey how about this Friday we get a bottle of whatever your preferred drink of choice is And we talk about our finances, I would just, you know, I think things are getting a little more serious and I want to tell you a little bit, you know, offer your stuff. I want to tell you a little bit about my thoughts and I'd love to hear yours. Start that simple.
1: I was watching this uh, Gordon Ramsay show last night and it was with like the little kids that were cooking and they're, they're, they're amazing. They're like making things better than I could ever imagine. And someone put a pork chop on a plate that wasn't cooked, and he was like, Who put it on the plate? And at first none of the kids would own up to it. And eventually one of the kids owned up to it. And then they were able to talk about, you know, broader things and, and fixing what what they were working on. Do you find it important to like lead with like where you suck or I don't know to maybe Because it's tough to, to, like, point at someone and be like, you suck at this. I would never start this conversation with a negative. Mm -hmm. Because especially
2: if your partner doesn't like talking money or is a little bit hesitant to get financially naked with you, maybe being self-deprecating eventually will help. Maybe if you kind of are introspective and say, you know, I struggle with X, Y, Z, you know. I struggle with how to... I'm trying to even think of a good example for me personally that I would have talked about with Peach, but maybe if you've made a mistake and you said, you know, I've struggled with making sure that I'm paying my credit card off in full and being that transparent with your partner, and they, in return, might say, well, I've missed a couple of payments on my student loans. Yeah. That's important information for you to have. Yeah, And especially to know... Okay, but that happened when they were 22, fresh out of college. We're now 30. He or she hasn't done that in seven years. We're cool. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's still happening. Like, we got to get that shit in check. Like, that's a totally Mm -hmm. different scenario. I would never attack your partner off the bat. If you want to lay your own issues on the table and so see you if those advocate attacking separate. your
1: partner, just not at the beginning, not initially <laughs> attack later, hold on.
0: <laughs> so what if you, what if you start with your goals first and then work backward from there? Cause I mean like to, to draw a parallel, I remember, um, like in, in conversations with my roommates, like say I have a roommate who leaves lights on all the time and like the power bill is higher because of that. If I'm I was reminded like Thomas, that
1: cost a dollar over the year. See, <laughs> that's, that's
0: actually how my, my mind works. I'm just like, I can just go make that dollar or whatever. But um, just like as an example,
1: mm.
0: I'm not going to start the conversation being like, hey, you leave, leave the lights on all the time and the power bill is higher. Like I would start the conversation off with, hey, guys, I noticed the power bill is 20 bucks higher this month. And I'm wondering what we can do to make sure it's as low as possible because I want to spend the 20 bucks on craft beer. And I'm sure you do, too. Uh, and then I could say something like, and I know I've been leaving my computer on all overnight when I go to sleep, so I'm going to start shutting it off. I don't know if you guys have any ideas as well. Then they might come up with the idea on their own. Oh, yeah, I leave lights on all the time. I'll just keep the house a dark, cavernous
2: goal setting.
0: instead. Yeah, goal setting is a good way to
2: start because <laughs> it's also easier to back into that. You know, If you set the goal of, hey, we want to be able to afford a house by the time we're 35 – yeah, And then you can back into, but wait, we as a couple are carrying $70,000 in student loan debt and we're right now 29.
1: Mm-hmm. So okay, now what's it's the next project. step. Yeah. Right.
2: I also would say sometimes your partner can give you an opening and you might at night. be the moment that you thought, Hey, we were going to get financially naked tonight. It might be as off the cuff as he or she saying, Oh, I got to go pay my student loans.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, maybe you say. We've never really talked about that. How much is your student loan payment? And perhaps they resist it first. And if they do back down, that's one of the things that I say early on when you're first going through this process, don't rile your partner up,
3: mm.
2: ease into it. It, it could take a couple weeks, couple months to really get financially naked all the way. I say yeah. it's kind of like financial foreplay. If you need to you know, go slowly, just take off, You know, maybe a little kissing at first, taking off one piece of clothing at a time. This chapter of the book, it's like, really a, my parents will be uncomfortable reading it i will say so <laughs> with, all the, with all the discussion to, <laughs> of naked
1: and foreplay and then you're alluding to more of that in your book they're like fly off the shelves
2: there might be a line about financially climaxing that's all i'm saying
3: <laughs> but, next book is 50
2: <laughs> but i do think it's important that in the beginning like eventually you will have to have tense conversations about money <laughs> but as you're laying the groundwork Don't get really into it right off the bat. If somebody starts to get worked up, maybe just ease up Yeah. to put on a show, go for a walk, whatever it is that you can do to calm down, because I don't want you fighting with it immediately. I don't want it putting a bad taste in your partner's mouth or in yours. So, you know, just take it easy at first, but eventually you do have to have the hard conversation and it it might eventually get a little tense, but Mm -hmm. yeah, talk about the goals first, figure out how you can be working as a couple And then once you start addressing what the bigger goals are, seeing what the obstacles are, and the obstacles are probably things like cleaning up credit scores, paying off credit card debt, paying off student loans, harnessing your spending. And instead of assigning something to your partner without you taking any responsibility for yourself, instead of saying, well, you need to stop buying lunch out every day. Why don't you say, how about we focused on cooking at home throughout the week, wow. and then we can do like one splurge date on the weekend. We can do like a brunch or a dinner, or what have you. So you're saying mm-hmm. like lead with team.
1: solutions, not yeah. necessarily pointing out what you're solving, just yeah. kind of, I like that. Yep. And actually, to, to maybe add in, because I think um, when you're in like a long-term committed relationship, it, it implies that you have this like future, at least... You know, and you're working together in your team, um, but there's like this part before that, or even just with people who you're not in like a, a, a romantic relationship with, or maybe is just self-serving. Where like you said in the beginning, you were making like twenty six or so thousand dollars a year. You're one of your first jobs. Like, uh, w- like maybe you want to ask your coworker, like. Do you also make twenty six? Like, oh no, I make one hundred twenty six. That's insane! They're paying you so little. (laughs) Like, like, how do you kind of get into that realm where it's not like you are both like lifting each other up, but you know you are helping each other potentially?
2: I like disclosing incomes to partners and friends, Hmm. whether or not you are in the same industry. I think especially if you're in the same industry, that's very helpful information to have. That's good information to have going into the negotiating room. But I think it's good for you to know or have a general understanding of what your friends make because it can help you understand the expectations that need to be getting set
3: Mm.
2: for things. Especially if you have a group of friends. This is something I've noticed when you get a five, six, seven years outside of college, you're getting to a point where Half of the group maybe went the route where they're making easily $100,000, $150,000. Part of the group might only be making sixty or forty. Yeah. Some of them might have gotten married and had kids. Other people didn't. These other lifestyle options that cost a lot of money are also directly impacting how much excess, how much discretionary income people have. So if somebody says to you, you know, if you're making $45,000, but you're living in your parents' house and you have no kids versus somebody who's making a hundred but bought a house outside of their means and have three children, your incomes aren't really as far apart as you think they are. Your yeah, discretionary are income really. is pretty similar at that point. So it's not all about the overarching number. It's also understanding student loan debt, living situations, values, savings goals, you know, there's so much back
1: stuff and it's not just that overarching number. It is so <laughs> interesting you you brought that up. Because in the fact that their discretionary income is kind of the same, because I think, uh, like if you're playing like video games, they usually use like gold or wood or rock or something as like a means of keeping score of how you're doing, and I I find it challenging to have that not be the case when you're talking about this, where you're making forty and they're making fifty and they're winning when it's re- that's really not what it's about at all and and maybe my question to you is like cuz actually you seem like pretty elegant about stepping through these things um, i'm i'm like a, i'm like i just go through the wall that's like my <laughs> elegant approach how how do you kind of handle that or or how do you make whether it's them making less and not feeling like that's a thing or i, I don't know part of that you can't help Because people's thoughts about
2: themselves and the way they introspect and maybe what they put on you, you can't control that. Yeah. And so I think that's step one to understand is your friend might end up having a beef with you for something that's completely outside of your control, especially if you're open about money, because that's one thing that has been interesting for me in my evolution of putting a lot of this information out there very publicly. You know, I had a, CNBC article get written where the headline was turned a worthless degree into a hundred thousand dollars a year my cousins did not know that I made a hundred thousand dollars a year and all of a sudden they're sharing this all over Facebook which is really cool that they're supporting me and sharing but at the same time my thought was huh, oh, now they're going to have expectations of what I can and can't afford based yeah. on their assumptions
3: mm-hmm.
2: where you got to take into account that I live in a very expensive city. I pay a lot in tax. I'm self-employed, paying for my own health care. Like, There's so much backstory of what that money goes towards. It's not the discretionary income that you think. So right. first, understanding you can't control what other people are thinking. But also, if your friend doesn't want to have an open conversation about you, but there have been enough clues, that's the other thing. There are so many verbal clues that you can pick up on about what your friend might make or based on what they're willing to participate in or when things clearly make them uncomfortable, you should never feel ashamed for your hard work and what you're earning. Right. But you need to be aware and empathetic when somebody can't spend on your level or Mm -hmm. doesn't want to spend on your level. That's Mm -hmm. the other difference. It doesn't have to just be about a can. It can be a lot about a want. So when you're especially in a group of friends and you're all making various salaries, part of it is not only doing what the anchor Sorry to use that term, but the person earning the lowest. So it shouldn't always be like, hey, we have to go to where that person lives and just stay at their house and not do anything fun. Uh You know, just binge drink in their house and watch TV. And we can't go to do things because that's what they can afford. And to some people, that's really fun. But I like to go out and do things.
1: I love how you lead with binge drinking.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, if you're getting (laughs) together with your college kids, your college friends, can we be realistic about what's going to be happening until you start maybe bringing kids on the trip? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but so let's say that like that's kind of the anchor in the group and some of you could you know afford to be going to Bora Bora and renting insane villas and that you know that's not going to be happening for your anchor mm. so why figure out an option that's kind of in the middle where it's not super expensive to the anchor to fly and get there It's not activities that are crazy expensive. You have a daily budget that you've set for the group, but then you also give the anchor a year to save up for it. Yeah. And you're understanding if they say, Hey, I'd love to see you guys. I just can't afford this. Mm. And it doesn't mean that the rest of you can't go, but, and maybe, you know, some friend groups, they might like pool their money to bring that person anyway. And that that's on you. But setting that expectation also is a little bit hard. To be early well, on paying for someone's way.
0: Yeah, but I was going to say that like money isn't the only resource. And I think like there's definitely an argument to be made that if, if you're not the anchor, like you can set up a deal where maybe you pay more of it, but then they do something else. Like maybe they're the person who drives for the most of the trip. If you guys are going to go somewhere on a trip, um, maybe or, like I had a friend who had, yeah. he had a friend from high school and like his friend from high school is like really early on in his business. So it's probably not making as much money. And he was like, I want my friend to come out and visit me in Colorado. And Oh, look, my friend actually happens to do something that could be useful for my business. So I'm flying you out. You're going to help me on a project. And Oh, look, now you're in Colorado and you can hang out with me for a while. And that
2: could be a tax write-off if that was a business-related expense. It
0: Which
3: was. was. <laughs> Just saying. Hey, yeah,
2: throwing was. that one out
3: there. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, so,
2: huh, that's a great workaround.
0: <laughs> solutions to those kind of problems when you have an income disparity. For me, um, I saw a book at Barnes & Noble today that I think like crystallized this philosophy I've had. It said, never split the check. Um and this is like my philosophy when I go to conferences and I go out to eat or something, I'll pick the bill up and then, you know, the next person in the group, they'll pick the tab up at the next bar and it could be a hundred dollars less. And I don't care because like, for me it's not about the numbers. I know I'll make more money later. And like I could have split the bill with that person and then got a speeding ticket later that night. And I would still be down the exact same amount of money. But for me, it's like, what is the experience everyone had and what are the memories everyone comes away with? Are they focused about the money and the bill or are they focused on the time we had and like how happy everyone was to be together? So that's how I think of like friend interactions too. If everyone in the group wants to go do something and one person can't afford it, as long as that person's comfortable with me paying for them, absolutely I'll do it. You know, as long as I don't like start to build a pattern of dependence with the friend, because I think you do have to avoid that pretty tactfully, but as long as, like, you understand they respect what you're doing, they understand that they're, like, still have respect for themselves and don't want to become a dependent person, like, Mm -hmm. on a case-by-case basis, absolutely do
1: that. And so, do I get to go, Aaron? Yeah, go ahead, So, So, I, I think, Thomas, I am similar in that, like, if we're going out, I would love to just cover the first check. I think it sets a great tone, blah, blah, blah. It, to and I, I only kind of thought of this while you were saying it, because I actually I do the same thing, but um, is that perhaps aggressive? It makes some people uncomfortable. Uh, mm-hmm. Right? That's the first thing to know, is some people
2: get uncomfortable with you always picking up the check. If they're kind of profusely asking to put money in, it might not be a decorum thing. It might be a comfort thing that yeah. they don't like because in their mind, they could be registering that as I owe you. Yeah, yeah, And they that's just true. like yeah. that feeling. So again, it goes back to that friendship script. You should know and understand your financial scripts with your friends, especially your mm-hmm. close friends. And I think that that's part of it. The dependency point is sort of my bigger issue is that if you start offering very early on as a group to subsidize one person, at what point do you take away this? welfare subsidy issue with like it's just like parental welfare that's what I call it when your parents support your lifestyle out of college Mm
3: -hmm. at
2: what point are they taking that away like has a metric been set early on do you say to your friend like hey happy to help with this first time next time we'll give you more notice don't make it a condemnation again but maybe say like next time we'll make sure you have at least a year so you can save or maybe you say hey why don't you start a savings account that's like earmarked for travel so that you always have a little bit of money to come hang or, or whatever it is yeah the other thing too is i think all of us to a degree need to recognize not everyone has the privilege to be able to pay for the full bill right mm-hmm. and i think it's a beautiful thing if that's what you value and the person you're with is comfortable with you doing it and i think it's kind of a nice notion to be able to think instead of counting every penny to think like hey it'll all come back around man like if i buy the the dinner now So and so will get me back later and not be keeping count. It's kind of like the I've heard people have tacky stories of going over to a friend's house to where they were invited to have like a bottle of wine and hang out and then getting a Venmo charge for like half the bottle of wine. Oh, wow. Without (laughs) an expectation that that was going to happen like that to me is so gauche. Yeah. Yeah, Totally tacky. Yeah. And maybe if you invited your friend and that was sort of part of the protocol, not in like a date situation, if it's just like, hey, I'd love to take you out to dinner. Maybe they helped you with something like I just want to say thanks and take you out to dinner and -hmm. they understand that you're going to be paying. But if you just plan to go out together, do recognize if someone feels uncomfortable with you paying?
0: Because that can happen. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I, I, I can identify like there are certain friends in my group who are a little more prideful than others and they wouldn't want me to do that. So I wouldn't do that. And then there's other ones that just don't care at all. Like, okay.
2: Right. And I don't think it's a gender issue at all either. I think it totally Mm -hmm. just depends on the individual person as well. You know, I'm someone who doesn't love when people pay for me, but it depends on our relationship. You know, it might Mm -hmm. be a friend that I know that it will come back around with them, that I know I can get something for them later. But if it's someone that I see once a year and they start just paying for everything, I'm like, part of the thought process is, do they think I can't afford this? And yeah. then that becomes a little offensive.
0: Well, I don't, so I don't think that, um, but like there are certain people who I know who would like always pay when I see them like Andrew,
3: it seems yeah. like every time I go out <laughs> to you with Andrew,
0: uh, he just picks up the whole tab, which is funny because he'll be like, yeah, this is actually less money for the four of us than it would be for me and Laura. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that makes me feel a little bit better. But In my mind, it's like, um, I know he just offers, but is he going to start to think like I'm the kind of stingy person who never offers to pay the bill? He just beats me to the punch. So I don't know. Maybe maybe you can never offer.
2: That's different. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I mean, it's it becomes obvious if the bill's just sitting there and you don't even make an effort to reach for it, then he might think that. But if you always are like, hey, man, and he's like, no, no, I got you. That's a slightly different scenario.
0: So as long as you go through that awkward negotiation.
2: Check, (laughs) Dan. It even happens in platonic relationships. But I think the other thing to think about here, which is super emotional, feely, touchy-feely, but people do have their love languages. And if you've never heard this term, people accept and give love in very different ways. And for some people, nurturing and acts of service is how they communicate to not only romantic partners, but... Platonic friends and family, how they feel and respect and appreciate that person, and so paying for a meal might be someone's love language to say, "I love you, I respect you." I need you to just otherwise. follow
1: me around and translate all of my actions <laughs> into, into positives. <laughs> Thank you, Aaron I'm going to use that personally. Here you go. When someone, when Thomas says that to me next time, I'm like, Thomas, this is my love language. I need you to go. accept it.
0: No, and to be 100% honest, like I absolutely appreciate it every time it happens. It's just like in the back of my mind, I, I'm I'm like naturally an independent person and in a lot of relationships, I'm a provider. Mm. So when the script is flipped and I'm with somebody who just like takes charge and pays for it immediately, like there's some part like – I mo- I think most of me appreciates it and is just like, hey, that's really nice. But there's a part of me that's just like, oh, are, like if they do that more than once, like am I not contributing enough to this mm. You know, even if like it never is said explicitly that like there's some question there because I'm I've always had to provide for myself. Mm. So whenever it doesn't happen, it's like a little weird.
2: The independence thing is an interesting part of that concept is I'm very, very similar. I think part of the reason that I have the issue letting people pay is that I do feel very independent and I like taking care of myself and of others. I'm a bit like you guys were like nurturing and kind of. Control is the wrong word, but handling situations is part of how I show my love. And
1: it does get mixed to control a lot, though. It
2: it can, though. And that's part of like, you have to be aware of that about yourself. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting. I one time was out with a friend of mine, male friend, which is relevant to the story, because I had heels on and we were in a cab and two different occasions in the same day, he got out first and then he reached back to like offer his hand to let me like to help me out of the cab. And both times I didn't know. I didn't even notice it. Like I didn't pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. And the second time it happened, he goes, do you just not like accepting help? Like it was that blunt. Oh. And mm-hmm. that was sort of a glass shattering moment for me. Like sometimes it's okay to defer to other people and to even just things that are just that small and that simple. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's very interesting you bringing that up. I uh, I tend to be like very self-deprecating or if like I do something and someone thanks me, I'm almost like, ah, like whatever. Like I was just something, What you know. But uh, it's actually um, like being more considerate to accept the thanks or to accept yeah. the help. Yep. Uh, yeah. Take the compliment. Yes.
0: Yeah, and when people offer you help, one thing I learned is like, Accepting someone's help of a small favor is actually like doing them a favor in a way because they feel like they've contributed. They feel useful. They feel like they're part of it, you know? And if you just, if you're constantly like, no, I can do that on my own. Like they don't feel like they matter mm. in yeah. a way. So I've learned to like, even if I know like, oh, that would be very easy for me. to do myself. I don't need to have them go out of their way. They're not going out of their way. They're not exerting themselves really. They're validating their role in the relationship and you should give them that opportunity. And to call it all the way back to the very
2: beginning of the conversation, that was an issue I faced when moving in with peach is that I was so used to handling everything Mm -hmm. because I had lived on my own for so long Mm -hmm. and to even just try to figure out what tasks to offload to him to a degree or thinking in my head, trying to explain this will take longer than me just doing it myself. That's a problem. Like you have Mm -hmm. to learn. It's just like with managing in a company, you have to learn how to delegate, even if it's something as simple as, I don't necessarily need to be the one going grocery shopping. I can write a list and he can do it. And it can be, you know, the first couple times you delegate to a partner like that, maybe they don't bring back the specific brand of yogurt or milk that you like. So you then pivot and learn. Slap I've them on the face, write,
1: yell at them. You
2: know, <laughs> but you then learn that you put like Faye, 2% next to the yogurt, and then that Dummy. problem gets rectified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Keep the shame out of it. We've talked
0: about this. <laughs> well, that's something I had to learn with hiring people. And I think that's been like one of the best lessons I've learned in business. Like no matter how good the person is, they're probably not going to do it exactly the way you want it done the first time because they don't have your brain. So right. like either you over communicate and overwhelm them up first or you just let it kind of take some time to for them to train up essentially and then what i've discovered is that for the most people who work with me they do better work now than that i could do maybe in the beginning i liked what i did better than what they were doing because it was like the initial baby steps but now that they kind of have some experience under their belt i couldn't do what they were doing and it's actually much better that they're working Mm -hmm. for me because i can go focus on my own little things over here Right. And I think that's the same thing with your relationship. If you have somebody take a role in a relationship, maybe you're better than they would be the first time they do it because you've been doing it forever. And like the first time you did it, you suck too, but you don't remember that. All you do is like, you can compare it to like your day 100 and their day one, let them get to day 100 and it's off your plate and they're doing it and they feel vindicated and validated for doing that.
1: So I want to, I want to actually like flip the script because I think that we were talking, like providing and whatever, and like I think it's it's like a weird uh, scenario. But for your whole life, your parents basically did everything. I mean, they wiped your ass, they fed you, and then wiped <laughs> your ass. Maybe at the same time, like it's ridiculous. <laughs> and they might not have been or actually they're probably shitty with money, you know. Like statistically, so if you are you know listening or you're just trying to like improve your finances and your parents are in a shitty spot how do you like talk to them or help them but like not patronize them because they're Mm -hmm. they're like more adults than you are
3: yeah
2: they will shut down this conversation the first time you try to have it i guarantee you it's going to happen Mm -hmm. and i'm very fortunate that my parents i mean i learned a lot about money from my parents and it an entirely positive way. And my parents are very open in discussing money, but that's not always the case when you're in a relationship. And then you also are contending with your partner's parents. You know, that can be a completely different relationship. So one, especially for millennials, if your parents paid for your college in full, you should probably double check that they didn't raid their retirement fund to do it. There's a, a really good chance That you are mom and dad's retirement fund, whether or not you know it or whether or not they know it, if they did raid that 401k or what have you or stopped contributing for a few years to get you through college, it could be likely that you need to be financial support for them in 10, 15, 20 years. And mm-hmm. it's important that you know that now and not then because now you can work that into your financial plan. You know, it's yeah. much better for you to have 20 years to save up to take care of mom mm-hmm. and dad as opposed to
1: next month. But how do you talk about that? Because right. like you said, they're going to shut you down like immediately. And I think that's like a pretty like unanimous thing. And it also for them to accept help from you where it's always been the other direction is, I don't know, not like belittling, but it's, it's not a comfortable norm.
2: No. And that they could interpret it as belittling. I think part of it, again, goes back to having that poker face that you talk about with financially naked. It's a little bit the same with your parents. And you could approach it as asking them for help on something or just bringing up a conversation such as, oh, I recently opened a 401k at work and sharing what your goals are. And then maybe asking just like with your partner and then maybe asking something like, do you and dad have plans to retire? Do you and mom think that you're going to stay in this house through retirement or do you have plans to downsize or do you have plans to move or are you thinking maybe you'd want to move in with us when there are grandchildren? Not necessarily that you're offering that as a solution, but maybe that's what they're thinking and that's something that's good for you to know. So I think it's talking about more of the really big picture stuff when it comes to retirement and then working back from there. And -hmm. you might be getting context clues about how bad a situation might be just from that beginning. Maybe you hear, well, I don't think I will retire. And depending on what your parents do, perhaps you dig in a little deeper to figure out is that maybe I won't retire because I love my job and I think that if I quit my job, I would have no meaning in my life. Or are they saying, I took care of your ass for 25 years and I can't afford to quit my job. So that's two different things. And it's a it's a slow process. The other thing that I sometimes recommend trying to do is tapping someone who's not a child or a sibling to come in and ask the questions. And it could be maybe your older brother got married and your mom has a great relationship with her daughter-in-law, but she's not your mom's uh, child. So it's yes. a different relationship. It's a love and it's a trust, but she didn't wipe her ass. So she doesn't have that same sort of feeling that maybe it's condescending or belittling so maybe you send in another expert that's loving and part of the family but not the child to start asking a couple of these tough questions or just starting a conversation that can lead into the tougher questions I
1: really like that yeah that's
0: a great idea brilliant approach my mom and I have gotten to the point where like she she's very comfortable with treating me like somebody who maybe knows better in certain instances because she's seen my path and it's very different than hers or so different expertise in different areas. Uh, my dad, not so much. And I don't think, I don't think he like tries to shut the conversation down, but he still feels like he should be in control of all that stuff. I'm a son, you know, it's so it's a different situation. And it's, so- and I, I happen to know like there are things my dad needs to do and if he's not going to listen to me, then maybe he needs to listen to somebody else.
2: And maybe it's also that you approach it and it can be really morbid. But maybe you say, I hate to bring this up, mom and dad, but eventually are going to die. And when that happens, I don't want to have to be figuring everything out. I want to be able to go through my grieving process without the stress of wondering where the financial accounts are, what I need to be handling, the bills that I need to be turning off. So do you have a will? And mm-hmm. if you do, where is it? Or do you have a financial planner that I know that I can reach out to that's going to have all this information for me? What's the protocol? But I think approach that not as a, you know, a condemnation if they've done it wrong or if they haven't done it, but saying it's a great act of love to me for you to take care of that now so that yeah. when you pass and I'm grieving, I don't have to think about that. hmm. And that is one of the most loving things you can do for someone, in my opinion. So,
1: so I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. Um, But I I think there's like, like a few layers there. Where, um, me personally, I want to make my own way. I don't want my parents ever have to support me or blah blah blah. Um, You know, and I think a lot of people want that. But uh, if you're broaching this conversation about, and, and broaching this conversation about the will and whatever it could imply or feel like 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 where is the money like what do i get when you pass which like i honestly i hope my parents take a hot air balloon ride around the world and spend it all but like how how do you not make that the topic of conversation
2: i think then you pigeon or pivot not pigeon jeez i think you pivot then and say instead of assuming they're both going to go at the same time cuz that's probably not going to happen you say Dad, does mom know how to access all the financial accounts? Does mom know all the information so that if something, heaven forbid, happens to you, mom is prepared and vice versa? Dad, do you know, you know, maybe mom pays all the health insurance bills, all the the mortgage, the household bills, and she takes care of all the nitty gritty stuff. Dad, do you know where all this information is? Do you even know the name of your insurance provider? You know, sometimes that's how it works out in a household where, the breadwinner might not necessarily be the
1: one controlling the bills. Yeah. like it could be, dad. Will you know how to feed yourself?
2: It really can be that simple or Plucket
1: beans, my friend, you
2: know, maybe they're still living <laughs> the in can the, opener is. <laughs> maybe they're still living in the house that you lived in as a kid. And it's way too much space for the mm. two of them. And you kind of have to say, you know, is this where you're still going to want to live? Or are we going to want to have to talk about, you know, you, you coming down and living with me, are you moving closer to me or, you know, they're, You don't have to hedge it as a, where's the money conversation. It can really just be more about, I want to make sure that you're protected and you're going to feel secure. And the best way to do that is make sure that both of you have the same level of information and all of the details.
1: Right. So like for your, for your whole life, they've, they've taken care of you, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, and you've, you've made all of your decisions, uh, I think there are points I'm I'm sure for both of you that like you're like I'm doing this and they just like they don't agree. Like if there's anything you should do, it's not that. So how do you keep like the open line of communications share? But, you know, I I don't
2: even know. I think with my parents specifically, so if we're talking about this in a parent-child context, Mm. obviously you're always your parent's child, no matter how old you get, (laughs) you never phase out of that.
3: Mm. And
2: I know for me, one thing that was really hard for my parents, and they've definitely come around, I'm now a full-time freelancer. I went into the traditional workforce for a while. I worked in a steady job with an employer and a paycheck for the first five years out of college, but then I transitioned into full-time freelance work. I'm sure they
1: were thrilled about that.
2: So there's that. And my younger sister went to film school at USC, left college and immediately went right into film. It's paid off really well for her. She's doing quite well in supporting herself. But those first six months out of college, my mom was stressed for her Mm, and she couldn't understand. It's like she couldn't get her head around why. And I think a big part of it is we have to think from our parents' perspective All they really want for us is usually for us to have a better life than they did, even if they had a great life. They always want better for their children, and they want our lives to be easy. They don't want anything to be hard. So if they see you deliberately taking a path that they perceive as difficult, they're going to put that on you. Mm -hmm. I've written about this before where it's how I defend my freelance career. And a big part of this was just kind of talking through with them and reassuring them that, you know, I, I have health insurance set up. And this is what it looks like and this is what it's going to cover. And I have this amount of money saved so that I had a rough month. I'm totally fine. And, you know, this is the budget that I have created to ensure that I am living well below my means. So I'm still able to put money into savings and money into retirement. And if you can show that to your parents, it's going to certainly take some of that burden off their mind.
0: Mm Yeah, Absolutely. It's a lot to think about here. I'm just thinking about how I'm going to talk to my dad. <laughs> Maybe ask your girlfriend to talk to your dad. I can't see that happening. <laughs> in our relationship. Like, well, so we're a little different because you said like the, basically the moment you get married, you want to combine finances and be a team. And like, that is decidedly not the philosophy that my girlfriend or I have. I, I think we're actually blessed in that way. Like we're not married yet, but we both are kind of of the mind. It's like just because we're married doesn't mean we have to combine finances. Like she's got stuff that she wants to buy. She wants to earn the money for it and buy it. That decision should be hers independently. And I'm the same way. I think the way we view a relationship is like we are a team, but we're also independent people who should be able to make certain decisions just because we want to without what about having to consult. Team so, goals.
3: But we talk about team goals,
0: right? So, I mean, like both of us don't want kids at the moment. So, I mean, we talk about this pretty often. Uh, Like one of my biggest priorities in our relationship is communicate often and honestly and always with the best intentions in mind. And I think this helps. Like, I think earlier on in the conversation, we made a joke about like getting financially naked. And if you like made a joke, they'd never want to do it again. Like that's how I picture or think about my entire relationship I almost never, if, even if I'm like mad, I'll never like say that witty little jab that comes to mind ever because my mind immediately goes to that doesn't make your relationship better. That hurts her. So I think that helps to sort of balance out having a bit more of an independent financial philosophy where, so we have like a, I think we have like a team thing and I think if we were to get married, we may have like a joint account where like the joint expenses that make up our team goals would be covered. But right now it's like I cover the rent and she just pays me the percentage that she pays me and I kind of manage it and that's always worked.
2: So would you, if you got married, would you be transparent about what each person makes and how much each person has saves? Would you think about your total net worth or would it just be your each individual net worth?
0: I think we'd think about our total network, and we're we're both very transparent about what we have now. Like, and I
2: think that's a big of part of it. Each of us knows
0: pretty much. I mean, I I don't think my girlfriend knows the exact dollar amounts in my bank accounts because she doesn't care. But if she were to ask me, I would show her the spreadsheet immediately, um, and I have done that. <laughs> and I show my mom my spreadsheet, so it's not that's like I, I want to hide it. But it's right. like we we're both very open with it. And if I was like, "Hey, how much money do you have right now?" she would tell me instantly, and I could tell her the exact same thing.
2: At the end of the day, transparency is what matters. Yeah. So if you agree to join separately in marriage and that's what works for you, because again, personal finance is personal. If that's Mm. what works for both of you and your mental health, as long as you're being transparent about it and that if your partner asks, how much do you have or how much do we have based on an accumulation of both of our incomes and net worth, you have to be able to share that number. What bothers me and I think is a level of financial infidelity is when those numbers get hidden. Mm. Because there are some legalese around the fact of you might mentally think of it as your money, but technically he or she is entitled to part of it. Yeah. So I think that that's an interesting part of this conversation, but to my team mindset, and I didn't really dig into this earlier, but part of my thought process is that because I'm debt free and peach does have some student loans that would get brought into the marriage, I'm very debt adverse. I hate the idea of carrying debt, so I would want us to get rid of that as fast as humanly possible. Mm. And I think the best way for us to do that is as a team. Right. Because I out earn him and my we, we negotiated and talked about this a lot because he has an ownership mentality over it and I understand that that he feels like it's his debt, his problem he's bringing it in. And I feel like yes, but it will impact my life. That debt will impact our ability to afford things and, you know, our kind of our overall picture to someone as a couple and so like a mortgage for instance you know if we have that debt weighing us down it's going to be completely different ballgame so what we worked out is if my salary can cover our day-to-day living expenses and then some of it goes into savings and his salary some goes into savings some goes into you know emergency fund and the rest he just puts towards his debt for those early years so it's gone He feels like he's paying it off because it's technically coming out of his paycheck. I feel like I'm paying it off because I'm subsidizing every other aspect of our lives together. So it's this together and separate kind of mentality as well.
0: That's a good way to do it. And I mean, I think that represents uh, a team goal that you have because you do care about the debt. And actually, my best friend and his girlfriend had the exact same setup. They're not married, but... um, She's got student debt. We just moved to Denver where it's more expensive. So Martin is like, you take care of your debt. I will basically cover the living expenses and provide for us while you take care of that because we care as a unit to get rid of that. Right. And I think that, I think there are a lot of like little idiosyncrasies or quirks or like mindsets that you have to have to work with a <laughs> like separate and independent yet yeah, somehow joint money philosophy. Like, if I out earn my girlfriend and you know, I need to pay more of the rent, like I'll do that. And she doesn't have debt, but if she, if she did that, if she did have debt, I would have the exact same philosophy where it's like, we don't have an explicitly joined account, but we are a team and this is something we want to wipe out. So we're going to do that. And this is a good way to do it.
2: And it comes back to communication. That's the Mm -hmm. biggest part of this entire conversation. Everything comes back to honest communication, whether it's friends, parents, partners, it doesn't matter what it is.
1: Karen, yeah. where did you learn all these approaches? Because you, you are far wiser in, in the approaches of this stuff than I am. Mm-hmm. I feel like I need to, to read some books or something.
2: Well, some of it's trial and error, certainly. And some of it's kind of going like what I've personally gone through. I think a lot of it is like I kind of said earlier, I was fortunate to be raised in a house where we talked about all this stuff so openly to the point where people think my family is really weird and really morbid. Like I know exactly what's on my parents' will. I know exactly the chain of command because we're all control freaks. So I think that that's (laughs) part of it. And like part of my parents love language is being like, hey, here's the number of the guy you need to call if we both get hit by a truck tomorrow. I'm like, great, thanks. That makes me feel better. (laughs) (laughs) And like even to the point where we played this game when I was a kid, my dad will still do it sometimes. I'll call it the percentage game, for lack of a better term, where if we ever ticked my dad off, he would say, you just lost 15 percent or your sister just got 15 percent more. (laughs) So. Just little quirky things like that. And, you know, it's such a silly game, but it made it so much less taboo. Like talking mm-hmm. about death, talking about money, all of these things just felt normal. So I think because I was raised thinking and talking about it, I've had a different way of observing how people interact with money. And I was really naive for a really long time and assumed that everyone else felt the way that I did because what you were raised in is normal. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so once I got into the quote unquote real world after college and started to realize that even some of my friends who came from very comfortable means and didn't have debt and weren't married and didn't have kids, they were still really stressing out about money. Mm. And my thought was, if you don't have any financial drain on your life, other than your desires and expenditures that you can completely control, why are you so stressed? Yeah. And so then I started to research and figure out why people felt that way.
0: Hmm. It's really cool. Yeah. You're definitely better at talking about this stuff than we are.
3: (laughs) I love talking about it.
0: (laughs) So do you do write or is your book about like these kind of conversations or does it have? Yes. Parts of it about it. it?
2: So the book, so it's broke millennials, stop scraping by and get your financial life together. And the way that it's written (laughs) is a pick your own financial path twist on personal finance. And part of that is again, it's a personal journey. So I'm not going to need the same chapters that you do or any of the listeners do. So I set it up in a way that each chapter stands on its own. And it takes you from the very one on one, like chapter one, it starts off as a story. It's me telling a little bit about how I got into learning about money. And when my dad took money out of my hand as a child, and it kind of explains like, Hey, this is why you should listen to me. Chapter two, it talks about a lot of the psychological blocks and the hangups that you're going to have about money and why they're there and how you can identify those. And then it goes into some of those really foundational one on one things, you know, understanding how your credit card works, knowing how, what a credit score is, how you pay down your debt, debt snowball versus debt avalanche, all of those kind of things. And then we get into more of the emotional, you know. Mm-hmm. One of them is navigating friendship and finances. No, I can't afford to split this dinner bill evenly is one of the chapters. Getting financially naked. And then I end on more of that. All right, I've gotten my financial life together. I want to invest. I want to save for retirement more aggressively. I want to hire a financial planner. I want to buy a house. So it kind of ends on more of those themes. Mm-hmm. And throughout the book, I have moments where I say like, hey, did you jump to investing, but you haven't figured out how to have a budget? Go back to chapter four. And so it does have those kind of guidances along the way as well. So it's
1: like a choose your own adventure type.
2: That might be a trademarked term that I cannot (laughs) legally use when describing my book.
0: Yeah, I used to read a ton of those books. I had like a whole bookshelf of them when I was a kid. I loved them.
1: I just have to say that the first sentence in your book is, In the summer of 1996, a glazed Krispy Kreme donut changed my life. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's my origin story. Mic drop.
0: (laughs) Now I want a glazed Krispy Kreme donut. Oh, they're so delicious. (laughs) I want Krispy Kreme to sponsor a book tour. Oh my God. (laughs) If if you
1: do that, teach
0: me. There you go.
2: (laughs) That is my new goal. You're doing your
0: book signing in the Krispy Kreme?
2: All the time, I'm giving you guys so much free publicity, man. Come on,
3: <laughs> that's
0: why hey, we've all of my time negotiated that with beers before. Okay, yeah, maybe it's possible. Mm. I will have I to, need to work on
3: that.
2: PR if any listener works for Krispy Kreme, please reach out to Aaron at BrokeMillennial.com. Thank you. <laughs> Official
0: sponsor, Broken Millennial, Krispy Kreme.
2: <laughs> I'm by the banks, guys. I'm giving you all advice, advice. But the book is just so storytelling focused. That's how I talk. That's how I write on the blog, the blog, broke Millennial. And so I really wanted to take out the preaching and the finger wagging and a lot of the like, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. Like, mm-hmm. here's a story. Now I got you hooked. Here's some shit that you need to know about money. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's a good approach. I like that. Actually, I've been reading, uh, I don't know if you've read any of Robert Greene's work. He did like the 48 Laws of Power and like 33 Strategies of War and stuff. Uh, But that's like exactly his approach to communicating an idea. He'll just like, I'm reading the one on war. So he'll tell a story about like how the Greeks escaped from this like campaign in Persia. They got tricked in and then tie that into the concept of like. And that's why you have to pay your mortgage on time. That's why you should pay your mortgage that time, because otherwise the Persian king will trick you and try to kill (laughs) you and you'll be thousands of miles from home. There is
2: no death, but there is sex. And maybe some rock and roll in the book. (laughs) 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 Different strategies, but same method.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That works. So, Aaron, you have the book. Uh, We'll link to that in the show notes. And where else can people go to connect with you or read your other work?
2: So you can go to my site, which is BrokeMillennial.com. And there's a lot of links on there if you want to get to some of my other writing on various other websites. If you want to find me on Twitter, I am very active on Twitter. So feel free to tweet me at BrokeMillennial. Instagram is BrokeMillennialBlog because somebody already had BrokeMillennial, even though they don't use it. And uh, Facebook also, BrokeMillennial. It's pretty much just Google BrokeMillennial and you will find me. Awesome. But just spell Millennial right. That's the big part of the problem.
0: Yeah. How do you spell millennial? It's the
2: two N's, two L's. I think that's always what helps people. People always want to do it with one N. Mm.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yep. I always get confused with like the double letter words. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And we'll have all those links up in the show notes. People can go click them if they don't happen to remember them. They're on the treadmill right now or I don't know. Where else do people listen to podcasts?
1: I was like, if they're not on the treadmill, then you should probably get on the treadmill.
0: Get on the treadmill.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Fucking the dog on the
0: subway. Are the worst. I do five minutes on the treadmill every morning, and it's the longest five minutes of my day. So. I think uh, about
1: you on the treadmill for five minutes, and that is the worst part of my day. (laughs) Fair enough. Treadmills are the worst. The worst.
0: Anyway. Um, so you can find those show notes over on listenmoneymatters.com slash show. You can also email us your personal finance questions at listenmoneymatters at com. And we also have a community. So if you go to listenmoneymatters.com slash community. We've got a whole bunch of money nerds, people who know better than us about a lot of different things. So if you have questions, you can always email us. That's totally fine. But you can also put them in the community, start joining in the conversations. And I think you're probably going to learn more than you can learn from us. Mm. So go check it out. Listen money matters.com slash community. And you can also find our bait, our favorite books. Roke millennial will probably be on that list very soon. Apps, tools, all of our favorite stuff for improving your financial life is over at let matters.com slash toolbox. So check that out. Thanks for listening. And we will see you in next week's episode. Later, guys. Later, man.